Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with uh, me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm uh, surrounded by Power Panel Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, and I'm delighted that they've all been able to say yes, I can stay another 30 minutes. So that is what we're going to do for the next half hour. Still take your questions, 877-933-2484. I've got a little bit of uh, cleanup to do from last hour. All right, a couple of things came in regarding what we were chatting about. Talking about being made new and uh, understanding uh, God's holiness. Here's a question. Do people really understand their sin before a holy and righteous God? Do they have a fear of God? Have they truly repented? I don't know if we really truly understand our sin before a holy and righteous God. It is interesting that most people that I've seen who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ come out, are coming out of a crisis. In other words... Sin is such a natural part of our life, we don't even think about it. It's just normal. It's who we are. The crisis that comes along, when our family falls apart or we get fired or we get a disease or whatever, then we start asking the eternal questions, which if you don't ask the eternal questions, you will never get a grasp of sin and why Jesus had to die on the cross. So I look forward to those opportunities with people that I don't like to see anybody go through crisis, but when they do, I want to make myself available if I have a chance to talk to them. You know, to understand your sin, that you're sinful, is kind of one of the first steps to understand you need forgiveness and you need redemption. So Paul actually in Galatians says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So that those Ten Commandments are out there. Um, If you see yourself as a liar, as an adulterer, as a hater, as a whatever the commandment is— then you recognize that is what points out your sin and need for salvation. And I think that's an appropriate use of the law of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I again, the, I, I really, I'm the judgment of God is real, and and it is gonna at the end of all things, uh, we're gonna we're gonna see that come. I mean, there, you just can't escape that uh, from Revelation and all of that. But when it comes to um, if if we let the Bible be the Bible and let God be God from the scriptures, and especially if we let Jesus be Jesus when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like if we just let that statement in and don't end up with some sort of weird trinity where Jesus is different than God, then we get a chance to see how does God operate within sin. And and when we and when we use this holiness language and all of that, we're there's some reasons from that, and it's it's 18th century theology. It's it's too maybe deep and in the weeds for for right now. So let's just let the Bible be the Bible for a second. And Jesus came into the midst of all of the sinners to save them from their sin. So he wasn't sitting back saying, "You're sin, and I'm so holy, and get out of my face." I mean, he the religious leaders of the day really actually thought Jesus was one of them because he sat at the table with him. And Paul talks about how God deals with sin, that where our sin abounds grace abounds all the more. So again, if we just let the Bible be the Bible um, and and t- really take that in, th- none of this compromises the holiness of God. 
Um, mm-hmm. but, but God is so much more powerful than sin that he's not scared of it, where he has to sit there yeah. and say, you know what, make sure that my holiness is maintained. His holiness is so profound that it can come into the midst of the grime and the, and the horror of our sin and transform it in some ways. And so I think, again, I think we need to reshape our picture of God, not to take away God's holiness, but to recognize what, what did he actually do with sin? And he came right into the midst of it. And he, he just like blew the whole thing wide open for everybody. Uh, and so the, this, the standoffish picture of God, I don't think is the biblical God, while we also have to deal with the fact that when the new kingdom comes, there's not room for sin. There is no more curse. And so sin cannot belong in the new kingdom. It's all been resolved and there will be a judgment. And, and people who persist in their sin aren't going to have place there. But my best shot at the text, if we let Jesus be Jesus and Jesus be a vision of God, that maybe it'll help us. It doesn't reduce the seriousness of sin. Jesus went into the waters of death for Pete's sake because of sin. Some, sometimes people say, well, Kapsner, you don't take sin seriously. You know, if you don't have a holy God, I'm like, hang on a minute. Uh, God went through a crucifixion and into the waters of death. I take sin terribly seriously. But the reason why he did it was to free his beloved, not to prove his holiness. Hmm. Yeah, I think that this is why I was saying kind of at the end of the top of the hour about in the Romans road, you know, starting with for all have sinned and not starting with sin. I actually don't start with an explanation of sin. I start with an explanation of the second half of that verse, if I were to use it, which is we fall short of God's glorious standard or the glory of God. And I think we need to first need a picture of who God is to have a true understanding of the severity of our sin, but also the sweetness of his salvation. And so I you know, it just a couple texts that come to my mind. If you do a kind of a comparative study between how God calls Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six and how God calls Peter in Luke five, uh, they're remarkably similar. And you see, you know, Isaiah six, he saw the Lord seated upon a throne in a holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He sees a vision of His holiness, and the first words that come out of His mouth isn't "Wow, look at that!" It's "Woe is me, I." I'm a sinner. I I, I I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of unclean lips. But then we see actually God approach and step into that, and he cleanses him from his sin, and then he calls him uh, toward, towards his prophetic calling. Similarly, um, when, you know, all, all the, the fishing guys, uh, Peter and, and James and John, they come in after a whole night not catching anything, then Peter, Jesus hops in the boat and says, go back out there. He says, okay, I, we didn't catch anything. We tried that, but because of your word, he does it. And they have a huge heap of fish. And uh, and Peter, it says that he falls down to his knees and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so when we get a true revelation of who God is and what he does, um, it, it does highlight us to see ourselves for who we are, um, both the great, I mean, the, and again, the, the cross tells us both the severity of sin but also the the immeasurable um, love that God has for us and, and the cost he was willing to pay to save us. And similar to Isaiah, Jesus then says, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. So we see this idea of him stepping into it, and but it does begin with a, with a revelation of who God is in order for us to truly understand the severity of our sin. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Mm -hmm. of whom I am the worst, Paul said. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, Jeff, I think that's so good. And and his love has demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, like in the midst of all of that muck, he came and, and died mm-hmm. for us. And, and so I so how I, it's interesting how often I talk about it with my students because they they are of the mindset that if they've been persisting in sin, that they need to be kind of cleaned up for a couple of days before they can go and approach God again. <laughs> and as as opposed to the idea of, wait a second, while you were stewing in your sin, the heavens broke open and God came near to rescue you from that. So right in the midst of your sin, go to the only redemptive agent in the universe that can break its power. Like to stay away from him, I think is one of the greatest delusions that Satan actually perpetrates in this world to keep us from the one power that can actually save us. And so stop trying to clean yourself up and then turn towards God. Go right to God in the midst of of your own brokenness and say what you guys have been saying. I can't do this at all. I am a wreck and I am a disaster and sin is killing me. Is there any hope anywhere? And that's when you turn back to this beautiful God who brings his holiness into play in your life and and breaks that power. It's really it the, the good news is such stupid good news. It's like way better I think than we <laughs> than sometimes we even believe. One of the saving graces for me is when I got a smartphone years ago. I was able to put in, when somebody died, or when somebody had a crisis in their life, you know, you try to minister in the crisis, you try to be there and help. But I was able to put in, you know, one month from now, six weeks from now, call so-and-so or whatever, out to a year. And it was amazing that it was usually around the fourth to the sixth month after that crisis occurred that that person began to be honest about what was going on in their life. And what I'm saying is don't run away from hurting people. Be there, minister to them, care for them. And recognize that that the the gift of salvation, uh, you know, the Lord will bring that if if the people are opened up to the Lord Jesus. And sometimes the only way they're going to see Him is through your patience and the way you take time with them. That's one of the other, the one another's in Scripture, right? Yeah. Serve one another, love one another, carry each other's burdens. burdens, build each other up, encourage one another. These are that's the body that you were talking about earlier, Tom. That. You know, I've got a couple of small groups, and these guys, one is called my Iron Man group. As iron sharpens iron, so one man's face sharpens another. I think that's what we do here. As yeah, we, we're yeah. sharpening on each other. But without yeah. those groups, those are my anchors in my life. And if you're trying to do this on your own, like you we were talking about earlier, it's like find a group, get engaged with a, with a group of other believers, and do this walk together. So good. Jeff? And Jeff, you said something at breakfast this morning that was so helpful. I I love the way you said it, is that why we gather on a Sunday is to equip the saints for ministry. I mean, this gathering that we do is to do this kind of work. And and I think there's, there's ways in which increasingly in our Sunday gatherings at church that we can bring this kind of thing to play. I think people are really hungry for the kind of community that you're describing. Yeah. I, I agree. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we've got uh, time for a couple more questions. Uh, text them over, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, which is one of the reasons I like Thursdays so much. Be right back. Got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Justin Jepson, and Rosie's on the board. She's not saying anything yet, but 
This is guy talk, right? Or guys who talk. So, uh, and when we need it clarified, we have Rosie. Exactly. Well, we <laughs> we get answers for her from her during the break. But we've got a, a kind of the lightning round now because we've got a number of questions we have to get to, and we don't have a lot of time left. So, uh, let me ask this question. This was asked by a listener. What are your thoughts about social drinking? Like right now or in general? I think in general. <laughs> in general. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Tom said this earlier that Jesus actually turned water into wine. So, I mean, he, he obviously, I think the scripture says this. It says, do not be drunk on much wine. Alcohol uh, affects the decision-making process. And if you have too much, you're going to be bad decision makers. We should be instead, as scripture says, filled with the spirit. That should what should be leading our decision making and not the effects of alcohol. To have a drink at dinner, to have a glass of wine, to have whatever, I don't think there's a prohibition in scripture for, for that in, in any way. So uh, that's my thoughts. I agree with yeah, you. I, it, it's, I agree with Jeff. Yeah, it's just not, there's no hard and fast rule there. It's like everything. Lord created everything good. We have the ability to make it bad. And we've got to be very careful about that. Mm-hmm. What about doing anything that would cause your brother to stumble? That's a different matter because when we have people over for dinner, I don't drink alcohol at all. Um, but occasionally my glass, my wife has a glass of wine. We will not offer wine to anybody when they come over. The The wine bottles, bottle, I think there are two, are hidden away. Not because we're trying to be deceptive, but I have worked with so many alcoholics, I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of them. And uh, so I'm very careful about that. If I was going to have a, a Muslim couple over for dinner, you know, I would make sure that the food I serve them is food they could eat, not food that I want to eat. You know, Paul says he wouldn't even eat meat if it would cause his brother right. to stumble, right? So right. I think if if it does, then then you're not acting biblically. Um, don't have that drink if you're going to have an alcohol an alcoholic or someone who struggles with alcohol yeah. over. I mean, I, I, that's that's Paul's attitude about meat. So I think that's fair. Because an alcoholic would see alcohol as something they're allergic to, just like a, a peanut allergy. You eat a peanut, you could die. Mm-hmm. You know, for an alcoholic, having a, a, another drink is possible death. Mm-hmm. So, agreed. Yeah. All right. Here's another question: uh, Does Jesus, Jesus's highest commandment, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself," does this absolve me from keeping the Sabbath? Yes, it does. <laughs> Jeff, you had a good word on this. You want to share what you were sharing earlier? Well, the believers are not under the law. Paul makes that clear, that uh, that Christ actually fulfilled the law. He consummated the law. And actually, Romans 8, 4 says that the law has been fulfilled in yep. us. Um, so I don't—what was the specific point that I made? <laughs> well, the point was is that we don't live under the law any longer. So therefore, the keeping of the Sabbath— is not a requirement for Christians. Correct. And this is why the Christian church celebrated Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead, because we are under a new covenant. And I think I'd love to have a whole hour we talk about covenants in Bible, because most people don't understand the concept, and it is confusing, and we don't understand from the old to the new that we're living under a new set of rules in the blood of Jesus. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we've actually, Paul says that, oh, I remember what the point, we have actually, Paul says, have entered the Sabbath rest of yeah. God. So actually, uh, biblically, in the New Testament born-again sense, we live under the Sabbath every single day, the Sabbath rest of God. 
Yeah, I, I would say it too. I, I absolutely agree with that, but I would maybe counter that with why would you not want to obey the Sabbath? If you look at that as a principle, I think from my experience, most Christians that will want to say, do I have to do this? I think they're not reviewing, they're not um, receiving, I think, the spirit, the, maybe the universal principle that's at play there, while the, the particular law and the, the specific rules and regulations around that underneath the Mosaic Covenant, as the Sabbath was assigned for the Mosaic Covenant, does not uh, apply to us or is not binding to us. But I think that universal principle about prioritizing what the Sabbath was about on a regular basis is um, is something that is that is wise certainly to do, and is something that I think will actually help us live more into the abundant life that Jesus makes possible. So I think it's, you know, again going back to the law, not just as a list of things to do, but actually as an expression of love from our Creator in terms of how to best live the life that He has made us for. So, um, so yeah, while while the exact Old Testament you know law Sabbath that's not binding to us, but I would move the counter that and say, do you feel hurried? Do you feel rushed? Do you feel overworked, underslept, stressed out? I think the principle of Sabbath keeping is um, is something that would be very beneficial and that that God might be inviting them into. It's interesting because Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Pharisees saw the Sabbath as a rule that had to be kept from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Um, Jesus is saying no to that. What he's saying is set that, set that Sabbath time apart, whether it is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday or it's Sunday, and worship me and know me and be in my word and grow up in me. And I think that most of us don't do that. I mean, I, I don't know of any Christian that sets apart a whole, you know, 24 hours to just focus on Jesus one day a week. It would be great if we did, but we don't do it. Mm-hmm. In Romans fourteen seventeen, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, interesting follow-up question, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Although I have gone to church all my life, I honestly don't have any joy. I don't know what's wrong with me. How do I get this joy that the Bible talks about? I, I will start. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy... Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so forth. Um, the, you can't. It's tough to manufacture your own love. In fact, we only love because He first loved us. Where does our joy come from? It comes from the Lord. Where does our peace come from? It comes from Him. He gives us His peace when we believe and are saved. So I would go back to that first command that we talked about earlier. If you want the joy of the Lord, then fix your eyes on Him. Seek him first, love him first, abide in him, and he will bear this fruit. And I think one of the, the the concepts of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, this joy. I think there's a lot of Christians that struggle with this. It's like you have eternal life. You have the creator of of the universe dwelling within you. Let your face, you know, express or show this 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 state that you now have. And uh and I, I don't know. I just think if you have eternal life, you can't help but respond with great joy. And the eternal life and that knowledge should overshadow your bitterness towards somebody, your Absolutely. unforgiveness towards somebody, your hurt that somebody's done in the past. My experience with Christians that don't have joy is that they are carrying something deep in their heart 
that they've never really dealt with and they never really brought before the Lord, and it's weighing them down. It's like carrying around a 16-pound bowling ball all the time. You know, you can do it for a day, but you wouldn't want to do it for the rest of your life. And I wouldn't have any joy carrying that around for the next 20 years. That's what I see Christians doing. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I love what you guys are saying. I mean, the origin of the joy is not our ability to drum it up. Uh, the origin is God. And and I think if somebody's struggling with that, and, and I certainly have been in that camp in my life, uh, specifically in the in the area of love, um, in, in terms of uh, authentic love that really just comes out, I just asked that, you know, I, I began to ask God to, to grant me that. And what was interesting is that the journey towards all of that was not a magic wand or a genie in the bottle kind of journey. It was it was interesting how many places God had to go into my heart to shift things around that were preventing those things from happening. And that was a painful process. But I love it when Jesus says that he is the great healer or the great physician. You know, we've been talking so much about sin being a leprosy all throughout the, today. And and that's the kind of healing that he brings or why he calls himself the great physician, because he, he's going to be doing this kind of surgery on our hearts. And uh, and you just got to put your your... your yourself into the hands of the shepherd and into the hands of the physician. And, and over time, usually, unfortunately, through trials and, and trouble and tribulation, then our hearts begin to change and, and that begins to well up inside. But I love what Jeff said. Our job is to abide in the in the vine and uh, where the branches and from that abiding over time, fruit is, is born. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's 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 a lot of reasons why, too, that, <laughs> that that can happen. You know, I, I heard it once said that, you know, comparison is is always a thief of joy. And I've, I've wrestled with that. You know, you go into church and you kind of see, hey, everyone else seems to be connecting with Jesus but me. You know, and you kind of, they're raising their hands, they're smiling, they seem to be, you know. Um, but it's easy to, to compare ourselves with others, especially in the, the day of social media and just the, the perception that we put um, forward, you know, for others to see, which more often than not truly isn't our authentic selves. And so I think going back to, Truly, what is our theology? What's our view of who God is? You know, I love A.W. Tezer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And then who do you, who are you, your identity? And I think if we can ground ourselves and abide in the truth of the word over who God reveals himself to be and over um, who we are as his beloved, um, joy, again, it's, it's the natural outworking of that. And, you know, to Jeff's point, it is a fruit of the Spirit um, you know, from that abiding. And so often I'll just pray as the Holy Spirit, would you please fill me and produce your joy, your fruit of joy mm-hmm. in my life? And, mm-hmm. um, and he'll, I, she'll do it. <laughs> All right. We still have a whole bunch of questions coming in and guess what? We're out of time. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it went so fast. Uh, and I do apologize because there's, uh, Joe, you've asked for some, uh, follow up to uh, reconcile a comment that was made and we don't have time for that but hopefully we'll be able to do it off air and uh, so many other great questions have come in so uh, I'm glad we were able to do a little extended version of Guy Talk today wonderful yeah thank Fun you gentlemen yeah. thank, thank you, you so great much, to be with you guys. much great to be yeah really really uh, great time together alright we're going to take a little break and then when I come back uh, Dr. Ann Rathbone Bradley my favorite economist is going to join me because I think there's plenty of things to talk about what's going on in the economy and what we can Uh, think about and process and understand what's going on. That's all next.
Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, you missed a great 90 minutes of guy talk. You might want to head over to myfaithradio.com. Check out the podcast. There was a lot discussed. I know personally I'm going to be going back and listening myself because a lot was... Um, a lot was talked about today. It was good stuff. I'm so glad that uh, Dr. Ann Bradley decided she could uh, join me today because there's so much going on in our economy, and I don't know how to process it, so I always call Ann because she's my go-to uh, economist. She's not only an economist, but she's an author and a professor, and I'm always glad to have her on. Uh, Ann, welcome. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, of course, my head just about exploded when I saw that there were... Um, the Biden administration claimed that there's enormous economic growth hours after the negative GDP numbers were released. <laughs> and I thought, I, you know, that might be true, but I don't know how to process it. So I need you. Well, you know, I'm happy to come on and talk about these things. I know you are. Um, so I'm glad we're going to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, here's the thing about the issue with politicians interpreting data, mm-hmm. regardless of which politician it is, right? They have an agenda. And so I think we need some clarity to just really think about the fundamental issues behind things like GDP growth and what, what is a good thing and what is a bad thing, rather than listening to any policymaker or politician in terms well, of, you know, what they think. Yeah, I so appreciate you saying that because the news broke this morning that the U.S. economy shrunk by 1.4% in the first quarter of the year. And a couple hours later, a president said, what you're seeing is enormous growth in our in our country. And I thought, I, I can't I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, no, I think m- most of us don't know what to make of it <laughs> unless you study it for a long time. So um, i happy to talk about that a little bit. Please. The numbers did come out today, as you mentioned, and there's a contraction. That's what we call kind of the economic decline that we saw in the first quarter. And here's what I'm going to say that's a might sound shocking, uh, but sometimes we might look at these small contractions and actually be able to say maybe it's good news. And so the reason I'm going to say that is obviously we want economic growth. And in the long run and in the medium run, that's really important. So you want to live in a country where the GDP, the gross domestic product, which is what we're talking about, this is the final goods and services produced in a country in a year. Okay, so that's how economists are measuring that number. And and so a decline of 1.4% means we didn't produce as much in the first quarter. So this is kind of used as a proxy for income. And the reason we use it as a proxy for income is because suppliers only produce things they think we want to buy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about going to the grocery store, um, I, my, this is my favorite way to think about this is, you know, you go and you see all the stuff in the bakery and it's all these fresh cupcakes and cakes and donuts or whatever they have and the sushi. And they have to throw that away when they don't sell it. And so what is their incentive? It's to just be as tight as possible, right? They want to kind of really perfectly predict how many cupcakes they're going to sell because at the end of the day, you know, they, they have to do something else where they can't make money off of it. Mm-hmm. And so producers only want to produce what people want to buy. So if GDP is going down continuously, it means that people can't buy things. And if people can't buy things, then it means their incomes are suffering. So that's the kind of way we think about that number. Now, there's a lot of, you know, we only have a short amount of time, but there's a lot of controversy and debate kind of in the academy about, are we even doing a good job of measuring GDP? Like, does GDP really tell us the things we want to know? So there is just, so you know, kind of some debate back there. But One of the things that caused GDP to go down in this first quarter is that government spending went down. 
And the reason government spending went down is because we stopped a lot of the payments that we were giving people during the pandemic, COVID-related payments. So there's obviously very ideological ways you could look at this, right? If you're a person that likes government and thinks government should do more and spend more as a general rule of thumb, then you might say this is bad news, right? Like the government's spending less money than it did before, and I think that's bad for the economy. If you're a small government person on the other side and you say, I want government to do less in general, then you could look at that GDP contraction as a small glimmer of good news. The other part of the decrease in that 1.4% is an increase um, in imports. Now we could look at that and say that's, you know, again, great, because if we're importing things, it means we have the cash to buy stuff that's not made here. So that could be good news. But if you're kind of a person that says, mm, I think Americans should produce things at home, we should import less, then you might look at that as bad news, right? So this is why the numbers are just not obvious when you just look at the 1.4%. You know, we want to dig into why the numbers are moving the way they are. Now, the other thing here is that the last quarter of last year, we had a 6.9% increase in GDP. So this is a big swing. Okay. And when you look at big swings, right, that's where, you know, we want to track these things over time and say, what's going on? So GDP was always going down. The, the short summary statement is that's a bad thing, right? But a temporary decline in GDP might have a silver lining to it. But if, it, if it's um, foretelling of just a long decline in the future, then people could start asking questions about recessions or depressions or just a decline in economic development. And that would be bad news. So that's why there's just a lot of nuance we have to look at in these numbers. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, Anne. All right, here's a comment that's come in, and you're going to have to interpret this for me because I'm not even sure I understand it, but I know you will because you're really smart. Um, That's an interesting result of the economy contracting, even though we had demand pull inflation, and it appears after reading the Wall Street Journal that we're now starting to see cost push inflation. Do you see that? Yeah, so, I mean, well, I I guess it's obvious that everybody is talking about inflation, and we're worried about the future and we're worried about what is the fed going to do and so you and i have talked about this a little bit on the show before Mm -hmm. just kind of what is the role of the fed and what have they been doing lately and so kind of my friend made a comment he's an economist the other day and he said the fed was asleep when we needed them to be awake and now we're kind of in this position so you know that's one take which is that the fed should have done something earlier um, and because we're in this position of having lots of inflation right now, people are comparing right now to the 1970s, and you have um, a demand side and a supply side to this, these inflationary problems. And so the demand side is just there's, a, there's an increase in demand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, the, there's also this kind of the supply and demand of money, right? So one of the mandates, of the, the mandate of the Fed is to, to control monetary policy, which part of that means they have to figure out what the supply of money needs to be, but that has to be in relation to the demand for money. And, of course, the demand for money is related to what? What people want to buy and what investments people want to make. And so if people are, you know, kind of – and it's just the ratio between, like, what people are spending today and what people are saving today. And so, you know, I think the Fed is trying to – obviously raising interest rates – um, and they're trying to, they don't want to, nobody wants to go back to the seventies. 
um, in terms of, you know, stagflation and the misery index and all of those things. Yeah. Or clothing um, styles. And or thank you yeah, for saying yeah, that. Or clothing styles, right? <laughs> or like the bright orange colored refrigerators. Or Amen. Yes. Um, or shag carpet. Yeah. So <laughs> some things can die forever, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, I do see that the the Fed here's what we have to be careful about, just to kind of talk a little bit more about the question that came in. I think one of the problems that we, we have to deal with is we want to limit the powers of, of an institution like the central bank of any country, right? If their powers aren't limited, they will run amok and do things they shouldn't do. So one of the responses of the Fed during the pandemic was to engage in what we might call questionable credit allocation decisions. So they were giving loans to cities and municipalities. This is not part of the mandate of the Fed. The Fed's mandate is really to maintain stable prices and full employment. And so I think the problem is this. It's not even just what they're doing right now, but it's the precedent that it sets for the future, right? So once a central bank kind of gets permission in a crisis to do things it wouldn't otherwise do, the the toothpaste is out of the tube then, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to put it back in. And so this is a problem that countries face, and it can get them into much bigger economic problems in the future. And so I don't think that's what's going to happen here, I hope. I hope the Fed reins it in views COVID as a temporary crisis, you know, but again, it's all about incentives. That's what, how economists think about this. So this is a concern um, that we have right now. Um, and the, the other part of monetary policy is that the Fed can't control supply issues in the market, right? They can't. Um, so there's a limited amount of control that the Fed has over an economy. Does, and that's a good thing. We don't want it to have absolute control. So kind of the debate now is how heavy of a hand um, should monet, you know, could it, should the Fed have in monetary policy and how much can it correct the situation we're in? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's lots of debate about what that should be. Some people like Steve Forbes came out and said the Fed should stop doing a lot of things and just let the market resolve the problems. Um, and I'll, there's a lot of people that feel very uncomfortable with that type of solution. You know, so the debate will wage on, but what we don't want to have happen is this kind of snowball of inflation um, that runs downhill because people's lives are damaged in this process. Inflation harms our incomes. It harms our purchasing powers. It's a form of theft, really, because we don't have control over it as citizens, right? We're kind of like at the behest of the people in charge. And your point about the cupcakes was really uh, helpful for me because they it's such a good point they can only they should only make enough cupcakes that they can sell that day because they have to throw the rest of them away so when people start to assess what's going to be purchased how much can they make or manufacture um, and then there's going to be people saying well I want more than that but then more is not available so that drives the prices up right so it's about those scarcity problems, but it's also about if if the grocery stores you shop at start getting the signals that they're throwing away more and more cupcakes, because as cupcakes are a great example too, right? Because we don't have to have them to survive. Right. I mean, usually you don't like eat cupcakes for dinner, right? I mean, you might have it as a dessert, but it's not kind of an essential. It's not like buying eggs or mm-hmm. something. And so the, the grocery stores, if they see people aren't buying cupcakes because their incomes are reduced, then that's going to be a signal to them that they're going to they're going to produce less, right? And so aggregate demand is a reflection of total spending, and that total spending is absolutely dependent on total income, right? So 
the money you have to go to the grocery store and buy cupcakes, if that overall, if your income is going down for a variety of reasons, there's going to be fewer cupcakes produced. And that's the contraction in GDP. So that's some of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. All right, Anne, I've got, uh, I'm going to take a little break, but I do want to invite listeners to uh, ask questions. If you have them, you can text them over to 877-933-2484. But I, when I do come back, and I want to ask you about uh, some of this student debt and some of the administration's interest in canceling student debt. I got a, kind of a stream of consciousness, and then I'll just have you respond. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. We'll be right back. show. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She is a author and economist and professor. I always learn so much when she comes on the show. Well, I want to sort of do a little stream of consciousness here because when, if Biden were to forgive the student loan debt, and I know there's lots of talk about that, there's always a push for that. Some of the thoughts I had uh, were, well, did you buy something that didn't work out? I mean, who talked the kids into these loans? And wasn't it the schools that did that? Didn't they say, well, you want to go places, don't you? So come here and we'll give you a valuable degree. So why is it when the school maybe doesn't deliver that that, that they, that they're, how are they not guilty? I mean, because banks just loan the money, right? So why should they be mm-hmm. denied repayment? Why do the schools get to keep the money if they didn't deliver? Right. And frankly, um, I think that this is really all very much connected, which is one of the things we've seen really over the past 40 years is just the explosion of tuition costs. Yes. This is obviously a terrible thing because it means that a college education is increasingly out of reach for working class families who, by the way, are the very people the policymakers are orienting, at least in word, these programs to. So on the one hand, right, the idea is like, okay, you have a you have a loan and you can't repay it, and so we want to help you. That might sound good on paper, but this just reinforces the spiraling cost of higher ed. So the problem is we have this we have this forty year problem that's well solidified, which is just tuition. It's not even just tuition; it's books. It's all the things that you need to go to college. It's just getting really expensive, right? So people have to take out more loans. The other thing I think that's a cultural problem, and I'll get explicitly then to answer your question, but I think it's in the background of these issues, is that we have kind of perpetrated this lie, in my opinion, a lie, that you can't like have some, you can't have a good American life or you can't achieve the American dream if you don't go to college. And this is just not true. And I think it's caused a lot of damage to people who would have been better off doing other types of things. So now people are really talking about vocational programs and apprenticeship programs because not everybody needs to go to a four-year liberal arts school. So there's a couple things that I think lead us to where we are. One is just this pushing of everybody needs to go to college. And so everybody's going to college. That's an increase in demand, which is going to cause an increase in prices. 
There's also heavy, heavy subsidies in higher ed. So higher ed doesn't operate like a market. It's certainly not like going to the grocery store and buying an apple. When you're buying an education, it's a heavily subsidized thing. And so that those subsidies means there are not the same incentives to make it more cost effective. And so there's all these problems. And so to your point, really, I think colleges have sold kind of a, a lifestyle rather than a degree. So when you mm-hmm. think about what has expanded the cost of college, and I can tell you this as a professor, it's not that we have more professors teaching smaller groups of students, which I think would be very helpful, right, is if you could lower class sizes. That's not what we've done. It's administrators on college campuses have exploded. So there's all sorts of bureaucrats running around at, at universities, um, and, and we're promising students this lifestyle. So you have water parks and movie theaters and all sorts of these amenities. Mm -hmm. And when I went to college, right, we did. I mean, if you want to go to the movie theater, you went to the college town you were in, you know, and you went and and watched a movie. Now the movie is kind of part of this living style that they're promising you. And so people are taking these loans and there's many, many people who are in default of their loans. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually think of the 1.7 trillion or so, that are outstanding educational debt, 10 million people are estimated to be in delinquency or default. So there's a couple things that have gone on, right, which is that the lie that you have to do it. So if you feel like you have to do it, then you're going to take out all these loans. And the spiraling, increasing cost of college education, which means you have to take out more loans than you otherwise would, right? Mm -hmm. And then this doesn't yield you kind of the income right away or maybe ever, just to pay the loans. So it's a it's a real problem. And so to your point, if the colleges are at fault, the bank is on the hook, as you pointed out. This is the problem with Biden's proposition. Mm-hmm. And this is just one, econ 101 is what I would tell my students here. We live in a world of scarcity. So just because we kind of swipe a pen in Washington on a piece of paper, and he's talking about using an executive order to do this, which is literally a pen and a piece of paper, an authority says, some people don't have to pay this anymore, and he's going to figure out what that looks like. That doesn't mean the money doesn't isn't owed, <laughs> right? Right. Exactly. The money is owed. Yeah, some, so somebody has to pay. Exactly. Somebody has to pay. Yeah. Right. So this is a problem. Yeah. A listener just texted in. Yeah, the student loan isn't canceled. Somebody else has to pay it. Somebody has to pay it. And so here's the real kicker that I think we need to talk about more socially and on social media and just kind of the conversations need to be loud on this point, which is who is subsidizing who in all of this. And as it turns out, college graduates have a 2% level of unemployment. It's Mm -hmm. absurdly low. They are not people that need loan forgiveness. If you took a loan, you need to pay it back. This is like a basic rule of finance, right? If you take a loan, you need to pay it back. So with low, low levels of unemployment, these are not people who we would consider good candidates in general, right, for loan forgiveness. And so the problem is what this is is kind of redistribution towards wealthier people. Mm-hmm. So wealthier people have taken out the loans. Wealthier people are going to get some of the forgiveness. And then who is going to pay for this? Working class people. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. a moral problem there, I think, which is why should someone else have to pay for a decision you made without coercion and that you voluntarily agreed, you know, I'm going to go to this college that costs $100,000 a year. You know you have to pay that back. Mm-hmm. And another uh, so, – oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
No, go ahead. No, another listener chimed in with the thought of student loans being dismissed raises my blood pressure. I didn't take them out, and it hits a sore spot, especially since I didn't go to college because I couldn't afford it. I mean, well said. I can't say it any better than that. that this is exactly the injustice of that, which is to say we're forcing people who had nothing to do with this to be penalized for the decision of others. That's mm-hmm. not right. Yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's been law school that's kind of talking, it, this is in the news, obviously, right now, law schools wooing students with six-figure tuition bills saying, you know, you will get this forgiven. So colleges have Whoa. been using this. Law schools have been using Whoa. this as a way to convince people to go there, which is unethical. Oh, that's nuts. Because if you're going to go to school, right, for, for half a million dollars, you should be well prepared to be paying for that for decades, <laughs> probably. You yeah. know? Mm-hmm. All right, Anna, here's another question that came in. I'll just read it. Would you agree that fiscal policy is going to have a greater impact on reducing inflation? It, I, I think it has to in this way. So fiscal policy, meaning the spending and, um, you know, um, revenue decisions of the government, uh, the different from monetary policy, which we talked about earlier. So here's the problem that I just think we can't get away from. We have this inflationary period right now that I think is the result of a variety of things. We lived through a pandemic where we shut the economy down. Obviously, that is You know, we've recovered largely, but not everybody has recovered equally, I think, is the way to put that. Right. So there's these ripple effects. Plus, shutting the whole world down means we can ship things and we have all these shipping delays. And so there's all these things that are factoring in to inflation. But I think one of the biggest problems, and this is where monetary policy and fiscal policy, I think, are related, is that the Federal Reserve, I think I just read, and I, I might get the number wrong, but it's like 80% of all the bills in circulation have been printed in the last, I think it's 24 months. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, wow. like, oh, my gosh, when you hear that, you think, that doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the activities, so kind of the criticism that I have of the Fed is that the Fed has gone beyond what it's supposed to do, and it's engaged, it has engaged in fiscal policy through quantitative easing, through um, all these kind of weird loans that they shouldn't have been doing in the first place because it was outside the mandate. So fiscal policy creates problems for monetary policy, and monetary policy can create problems for fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. Now, to directly address the, the comment, the fiscal policy problems that we have is that we have debt that we cannot afford, and we have insolvency issues. So Social Security is, is something that we've been talking about for a long time. The writing is on the wall. It's very clear. It's insolvent, meaning ultimately there's nothing left, right? And so the reason we have nothing left is because, I mean, this is a program where the government was supposed to hold your money for you, right? It's your money. You have paid forcibly. Been, <laughs> it's been taken out of your paycheck for your whole life. And the idea was the government will hold it for you and they give it back to you later. And so that when you're older and you don't have a job, you're not like living on the street. This is like, again, maybe sounds good on paper, but the problem is what? You have to trust the government not to spend the money. Mm-hmm. And the government is not very trustworthy in this regard. And it's not just the U.S. government. It's happened in Greece. It happens everywhere. So that's, that's where we are right now. So I think we have unfunded liabilities like Social Security and Medicare 
that are creating a fiscal crisis. And this just factors not only into our current inflation problems, but just really longer term economic development and economic growth problems. Mm -hmm. It's unsustainable. So somehow it has to be fixed. And I think the problem in Washington is I'm not hearing from people on the left or people on the right. Hey, we need to rein in the spending or we're going to have to really raise taxes. And there's just no consensus on either of those things. People, some people want to raise taxes, lots of people don't, and nobody seems to want to reduce spending. So it seems to me we're kind of at a temporary impasse here. Mm-hmm. That's uh, so good. And come on the show it's more depressing. often. Yeah, it's depressing. <laughs> I would love that. No, I know, but I, I, we're actually out of time. So I'll have to just say, please come on the show again soon. Anytime. Right, I'd, good, be, I'd be happy I, to. I, I enjoy will, it. I will Thank call you. you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ann Bradley. has been my guest. That's the time we have for today. I am so glad that we had however much time you were able to spend with me today. Maybe you're listening to the podcast tonight, so thank you for doing that. I just uh, love having this time with you. And uh, if you missed any of the show, go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast. We'll see you tomorrow as you lay your head on the pillow. Just know that God is working out his great plan in your life, and he loves you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.